Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another edition of the Black Doctor Speaks podcast. I'm Jason James, executive producer of the show. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information from some of the nation's top doctors who just happen to be black. Our show today features an interview with Dr. Oliver Brooks, current president of the National Medical Association, where we discuss the healthcare system is built for black and brown people to survive the coronavirus pandemic. I'm joined now by our host, Dr. Michael Lenore, a medical reporter and a past president of the National Medical Association. How are you doing today, doctor? I'm good, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Just trying to stay abreast on all the latest news that's happening. Uh, recently, President Trump called Dr. Fauci an alarmist, um, and I'll actually give you the full quote on this. He said, Dr. Fauci's made some mistakes, but I have a very good – I spoke to him yesterday at great length. I have a very good relationship with Dr. Fauci. He's a little bit of an alarmist. That's okay. What's your reaction to this? Do you think Dr. Fauci is an alarmist? Has he overreacted to this whole situation? I think President Trump's living in an alternative universe where he feels that at some point something magical is going to happen and this virus is going to go away. I agree with most of the consensus that he's walked away from the problem, that he doesn't understand the importance of testing. He's not necessarily empathetic on the number of people who are dying. He just wants us to go away, so puts him in a better political position. I think Dr. Fauci, I, as other Americans, is my source information about this virus, not that, not President Trump. Well, I agree with that. I tend to trust the experts on these things, and Dr. Fauci is definitely one of those. Another thing that came out this week in news, which is of great importance to myself and my wife as we have school-aged children here in California, is that Governor Newsom just put requirements in place that would currently keep 80% of California schools closed until their respective counties spend at least 14 days off of the governor's watch list. Can you speak to this? Was this the right choice? I just think that it's a choice that parents have to make. I mean, I think that it's the safe choice for safety uh, and the certainty to reduce the spread of the virus. However, there are other issues around the quality of education these children can get. The fact that the parents have to work and try to find out ways in which childcare can be obtained. And so consequently, this is one of those questions where your doctor can't answer it for you. It's a question of safety on one side and then the realistic needs of families on the other. And I think each family has to make that decision for themselves. Personally, I agree with it. Well, speaking of things reopening, there may be some light at the end of the tunnel. Recent reports suggest that they are having some success with vaccine trials. What's happening with this? The progress is in many areas. There's a report in today's uh, Lancet on an English study looking at a vaccine which is very complicatedly called CHADOX1. It's been given to a fair number of people with really good results. Uh, neutralizing antibodies have been detected in almost all of the people who were um, uh, vaccinated and with limited side effects. I think the question still is going to come up as to how long it lasts and how effective it is over a period of time. 
but certainly that's an exciting place for us to be where they're already starting to look at virus uh, research uh, at another level, which gets it closer and closer to being released to the public. So this article in Lancet on this particular vaccine, and there's some good things on other vaccines, suggest that we're moving pretty rapidly toward a vaccine. Well, that is definitely great news, and I hope that there will be more good news coming to us soon on that front as we look to uh, fully reopen our country and make it through this pandemic. I want to now pivot over to our interview that we have today. Please tell us a little more about Dr. Oliver Brooks. Dr. Brooks is a pediatrician. He runs a very large health center in Los Angeles and has been on the front lines of caring for people and identifying children with the coronavirus. He's an expert in immunizations and now serves as the president of the National Medical Association. Let's hear what he has to say. Most of you have heard that the coronavirus impacts African Americans the most. In percentage number of cases, in percentage number of deaths, there's no question that this virus has a unique impact on our community. Dr. Brooks, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me, Dr. Lenore. Dr. Brooks, when did you become aware that the coronavirus might be a problem? As I think back, I will say that I remember hearing the reports in January about this novel virus and that they had locked down a city of 13 million, Wuhan. I do remember early March, we started hearing more about the virus, getting reports of community spread. When did you start to realize that this might be a problem for the African-American community? I think that it should have been clear to those who were focused on it that this could be a major concern in the United States. I do believe that it was downplayed by national officials. And if I had to blame anyone, I would blame those who felt that if this became a national primary focus with an early response, that there may be some political ramifications, some effects on the economy and some and focus on the fact that our United States government really was not prepared. Our president-elect wrote an article describing the response to this and the effect on the African-American community uh, in comparison to Katrina, the hurricane in New Orleans. And in my mind, I was hearing that the CDC was stating that those with diabetes, hypertension, COPD, liver disease, kidney disease, obesity were more at risk for death. And I said to myself, well, that's African-American community right there. By eight days later, there was a national discussion on the disparities in the outcomes. So we at the NMA and myself being part of it were ahead of the game in terms of focusing on the disparate effect on the African-American community and why. The whole saying of if the America gets a cold, the black community gets pneumonia. Dr. Brooks, what amazed me about this phenomenon is that America was surprised. We know from the cradle to the grave, African Americans are sicker, more often die earlier with every kind of chronic disease. So why should this be different? All kinds of explanations have been given as to why this might happen. Genetics, lifestyle. What do you think of the three major factors contributing to our outcomes with the coronavirus. It's actually well known the effect of racism on a person's health. So I 
believe and know that the three elements that are woven together that are leading to adverse outcomes are in no particular order. Underlying conditions, the social determinants of health, and racism. These are the three elements that are the direct cause of African Americans having adverse outcomes from COVID-19 or respiratory infection. Okay, so pre-existing conditions. I think it's an important one to start with because part of Obamacare was to treat people regardless of pre-existing conditions. So that was moving in the right direction. So the data is showing that those with diabetes, hypertension, obesity, lung disease, kidney disease are more likely to have a bad outcome from COVID-19. And African-Americans have 50% higher rates of diabetes, 40% higher rates of hypertension, 30% higher rates of obesity. So right there, we were a setup. And what's the second? Social determinants of health. Now, these are factors in the environment in which one lives that affect their health. And we're finding out that this is as important as your genetics or the medical or health care that you're receiving. So such things as income, the net worth of an African-American family is $17,000 on average for a white family, 170000 on average. So there's a wealth gap, which I call it leading to a health gap. We are uninsured more likely. 11% of African-Americans are uninsured versus 8% of the, uh, of the white community. In terms of housing, we're more likely to live in a house that is near a freeway. We're more likely to have many people in a smaller space, so we cannot physically distance as well. So these are just some of the issues that lead to poor outcomes that are the social determinants of health. And the third issue. So the third issue is a little intangible, but there's data that show it, and it's something that is going to be a challenge for the broader community to address, but that's institutionalized racism. This country has a 400-year history of racism. Studies show that when African Americans seek care, the care they are provided can be suboptimal compared to the white community. There was a study that showed when African Americans presented with a chief complaint of chest pain, they were less likely to get stents and coronary artery bypass surgeries. They got less aggressive treatment. There's also a study that came out of Oakland that showed that when African-American men got treated for heart disease, their outcomes were better versus when they were treated by white physicians. We all know that there is implicit bias. When, a, when, when others see a black man, they see a black man. They see a white man, they see one of them that needs uh, attention. You know, Dr. Brooks, I think that attitude starts early in medical school. When we were in our clinical years, we were consistently presented with black, older black men and women who were alcoholics or drug abusers or in poverty uh, as examples of diseases that we were studying. And I do believe that those attitudes changed and never changed back completely. There was a study not too long ago which referenced a situation where um, white medical students admitted that they looked at black people differently. But it didn't affect their judgment, was the conclusion. Now, we've been in these doctor's lounges. We've heard off 
Kant remarks, we know that some of these same issues and prejudices exist even in liberal California. So with that attitude so prevalent among providers in the healthcare system, what are the things that African Americans can do to guarantee they get the kind of health care they need in this pandemic epidemic? So that really is the $64,000 question because the, all those three factors to which we have alluded are working against them. So I would say first and foremost, advocate for yourself. Don't take no for an answer. If you go there and you say, you know, I, I have fever and cough or I have shortness of breath or my son uh, tested COVID positive, I need to get tested, I need to get evaluated. Uh, if they say, well, we really don't think so, don't leave until they do what you need to do. We as African-Americans have been in situations many times in our lives where we just had to demand proper care. I believe that if we get as mad about health care and as uneven and inferior as we do when someone cuts in front of us in the Safeway line, we wouldn't have this problem. You may go to a hotel and they say there are no rooms available. I know there are rooms available. Find me a room. We wouldn't have this problem. What about, having, what about having somebody who knows something about science and medicine as an advocate for you when you go in the hospital? Because your mother and your brother and your sister may not be your best advocate. Correct. And I agree with that. And you think about it when I go into the hospital or when I go to my doctor's office, I get better care because my doctor is a doctor and I'm a doctor. So you should, as best you can, find an advocate for you, an African-American medical health care professional. It doesn't even have to be a doctor. It could be a nurse. It could be an MA. It could be a respiratory tech. But someone who knows the system and knows how to help you navigate. And what I say to all that is, yeah, you use what you have and, and take it seriously. Uh, we, we, as you said, <laughs> someone cut it, you line of Safeway. You went to your barber, and the barber said, uh, you got to wait because this guy here, you knew that he was supposed to go after you. You wouldn't just say, okay, and sit down. No, you say, no, I'm up next. So same way maybe on the, on the uh, ball court, on the field. I hate that it's this way. But how about this? If you're in the hospital or have a major relative in the hospital and you're not getting the explanation you think you need, how about having one of your relatives call from another city saying, I'm Dr. So-and-so, and my cousin, my brother, my uncle is in the hospital here. What's going on? I guarantee you that the care that that relative gets or that you get will be vastly improved because that doctor is going to be on notice that someone's watching what's going on. I concur with that, and I have done that. When my mother was um, getting care for a, a finger surgery that she had just to loosen up a tendon, I would call the doctor. When I was back home, I'd go in with her to see the doctor, and she told me, oh, they... It gave me pretty good attention today. So absolutely, absolutely, you need someone to advocate for you. And the higher level they are, the better. What What is the National Medical Association going to do differently this time? Have they seen the impact of a problem they've identified for years play itself out in this coronavirus um, um, situation? So one thing, we will develop more and stronger strategic partnerships. We right now are partnered with the AMA to be involved in a campaign called Release the Pressure where 
African Americans will take a pledge to reduce their blood pressure, to do uh, self-management of their blood pressure at home, and there will be a series of educational um, pieces to work on that. Hypertension is cardiovascular disease is number one killer of African Americans and Americans in general. So that is one activity. We also have partnered with Rainbow Push Coalition to uh, forward a manifesto, which is looking at protecting vulnerable populations, including, for example, the prison population, the essential workers. Suddenly, as African Americans, we're essential. So we are working with uh, Push to ensure that those people are uh, covered. We have webinars that we have done every other week to educate the African-American physician community and others regarding the COVID-19 and other cofactors such as HIV, vaping, and social determinants of health. We're being very strong in advocacy for legislation. We go up on Capitol Hill and meet with congressmen and women to advocate for specific legislation. Uh, we are working hard to increase the number of African-American physicians, black men in white coats, sisters with stethoscopes, the two organizations that we have um, been in contact with and involved mm -hmm. with, because we need more black doctors. More black doctors is one of the single most effective actions that we can take. And you know, I'm not shy about saying this. You have the right to pick your own doctor. But when doctors of different cultures are in a system, the culture of that system changes. And that's true when you have black doctors around. Some of the judgments are made, some of the decisions that are made, some of the system-wide policies that are made are not the same if an African-American physician is in the room. And so consequently, we all have a stake in making sure that the 3% of doctors that are African-American increases substantially over the next few years. We've been talking for several months about the fact that children are not as susceptible to this disease as the rest of the population. Uh, maybe too many receptors in adults, not so many for children. Tell us a little bit about the syndrome that develops in children after they've had the disease. Right, so we are just now becoming aware of a condition called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, MIS-C. So, it seems to be some type of autoimmune reaction. I think an important point that you stated, which I'm not sure most people out there know, it seems to come weeks after a child has been exposed to or has been COVID-19 positive. It's a very serious condition. These children often present with shock, which means their blood pressure is low, their respiratory status is uh, compromised. It generally is treatable with support, antibiotics as needed, fluids and oxygen and ventilatory support. That doesn't mean that we need to let up as it relates to being concerned about our children and therefore having concern if you're thinking about uh, returning them to school anytime soon. So this MISC is out there. Right now I will note that it is felt to be rare, but as we move through the coronavirus infecting and affecting the United States, I believe we will see more cases. Let's discuss for a second the role of the Surgeon General. The African-American got in some trouble by using terminology that some people found offensive, even though he said this occurred in his family. In my experience, 
and my opinion looking at him, he seems to be on point for most of the things that we need to know. But he's definitely in a tough position. If the administration doesn't agree with the science, what can one person do? I think that there is some general resistance to the simple fact that he's a surgeon general in a, um, in a Republican or a right-wing administration. So just from the start, I think there was some skepticism. I think that it had someone else said the same thing that he said, they would not have caught, caught as much heat. I believe that he probably could have done a little bit better as related to the, the, um, the drugs, tobacco, and alcohol aspect of his statement. But I think that fundamentally, I know Dr. Adams, and I've spoken with him, and I know that his heart is in the right place. If you really think about it, it was after that that it really took off regarding discussion of um, disparities in the outcome. I think that we need to support our Surgeon General. I think that he does have the interests of the African-American community at heart. I think he has a difficult job at this point in history of his role as a Surgeon General uh, in 2020. Thank you so much for taking the time today, and we hope that you are a familiar figure here on Black Doctors Speak. Thank you very much, and thank you for having this forum, Black Doctors Speak. The African-American community needs to hear this information. Well, Jason, a lot was covered in that interview. What do you think? We are very fortunate to have access to people such as Dr. Oliver Brooks um, and have them on our show to be able to speak about advocacy and how we can better arm ourselves with the knowledge needed to succeed in this healthcare system. It's nice to know that we are doing our part to make this world a little better for our people and for people of color in general. And on the subject of doing our part, we recently started a new segment on social media where we give listeners of the Black Doctor Speak podcast a chance to ask us some questions and have them answered here on the show. So I'd like to go to a couple of those. The first one comes in from Chris Mackin on Facebook. He says, there are a lot of conflicting theories on how the virus can be spread. Can you please clarify some of the transmission myths versus reality? Well, I think that less and less people believe that it sits on surfaces as long as it does. It's primarily spread by air droplets, and they can hang in the air for a very long period of time. So if you think about it and you think about it logically, people who are coughing or sneezing are much more likely to spread uh, the virus than if you're just simply talking. And a mask will help regardless of whether you're talking, sneezing, or coughing. And so wearing a mask is so critically important. The other thing is it's not clear to me how far that virus can travel, but the working number is about 6 to 10 feet. So that I think when we talk about safe distancing, we're really talking about that distance. Now, there was a recent study that showed that uh, perhaps it's in sewage and perhaps it may be in water, but that has not been uh, significantly uh, confirmed. Right. And then on the subject of mass, it actually leads us to our next question. This one comes in from Instagram from Supreme Plug G. Is there a legitimate medical excuse for not wearing a mask? Well, you know, I believe in short answers. Short answers, no. I mean, you're wearing a mask not so much for your protection, but for the protection of other people around you. It's a simple sacrifice to make. Uh, and it probably at this particular stage with the virus running rampant across the states, 
is the only way to slow this virus down. Well, there you have it. I want to take a moment to go back to our interview with Dr. Brooks and address something that he said that really struck me. It's the idea that systemically, the healthcare system may not have been built for African Americans and people of color to actually survive a pandemic like this. What's your reaction to that? Well, I think that there's a lot to that, uh, that the whole system of American health has treated African Americans very poorly. If you look at numbers uh, of chronic diseases, people who are sick and dying from them without any particular genetic predisposition, then what you see across the board is that we're dying unnecessarily. And so consequently, that's been present for a long time. So then you come and you cover that with a pandemic, you're going to get the disaster that we see in the African-American community. Uh, in addition, uh, because African-Americans are on the front lines of interactions with people necessarily, driving buses in grocery stores, cleaning up, taking care of people in nursing homes, obviously they're going to be the most at risk. And we've done very little to protect them in the way that we protect the doctors and nurses who are doing their life-saving work. Uh, in ICUs and hospitals. So the answer is no, no, no. We're not prepared to handle the impact of any major health disaster in the African-American community. And, and that has to change. Absolutely. And I hope we start to see some of those changes sooner rather than later. And on the subject of change, um, last week was a very somber week for the country and people of color in particular. We lost two trailblazers of the civil rights movement, C.T. Vivian and Representative John Lewis. I just want to give you an opportunity to say anything that you'd like to say about the two of them and perhaps their impact on us as a people. Yes, I would say without question, these are two men who not only talk the talk, but walk the walk. Their sacrifices for us individually and collectively have given us the opportunities that we see for so many African Americans today, I, these are true patron saints of our movement and heroes uh, to all America. Very well said, Doctor. In this organization in particular, we take their work very seriously and we take their contributions to heart. And as we said in our social media channels, we vow to pick up the fight where they left off. Our thoughts and prayers are with their families. And our thoughts and prayers are with those of you who have taken the time to listen to our podcast. We hope you're keeping safe and your family is safe. But remember always, health is your biggest asset, so protect it. I'm Dr. Mike Lenore. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lenore. As always, it has been a pleasure. To our fans, thank you so much for listening to the Black Doctor Speak podcast. We are a weekly show, and we are sponsored by the African American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation with us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn at Black Doctor Speak and on Twitter at Black Doc Speak. And if you enjoyed our show, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Thanks so much, everyone. Stay safe.